they have a lot of leverage to pull to reduce their cash outflow as well. And we've seen that in the last two downturns, I mean, 2008, 2009, Great Recession, 2015, 2016, combined downturn, and obviously over the last two or three months as well. From our remote offices in the New York Tri-State area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets. If you're an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We're living a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to our more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. I'm Christopher Snow, the moderator, and I'm here with Wen Lee, our senior analyst covering metals and mining. Hi, Wen. Welcome. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Wen, you've been covering metals and mining through many of the mini cycles over the last nearly decade. So let's just jump in. Steel is a bellwether of so many topics in the global economy. You have the supply-demand balance in China, supply-demand balance in the United States, you have trade, you have the global oligopoly in seaborne iron ore. You know, what are your thoughts on the steel market fundamentals globally and in the U.S. at the moment? Yeah, so the steel sector is actually very global in nature. And I would say that it's definitely oversupply over the last several years, driven largely by China. And in the U.S., the policies implemented by Trump and obviously the impact of COVID on economic demand has really accelerated this oversupply issue in the U.S. The big culprit is obviously China. And if you step back a little bit, China has you know grown their steel capacity over the last 10 to 15 years to the point where they're producing roughly 900, 950 million tons of steel per year. That's more than 50% of the global production. They obviously consume a lot of steel, but they produce a lot more than they consume, and they export a lot of that out into the global markets, driving oil supply in the global markets. So in the Obama administration, you know, Obama implemented a lot of trade cases against certain products from certain countries. That worked out okay. And when Trump got elected, he implemented Section 232 in 2018, which were broad-based tariffs on steel and aluminum imports into the United States. That really drove a rally in steel prices in 2018, which led to a restart of high-cost capacity. And also, Electric Arc Furnaces announced some major capacity growth capex projects that will start up over the next two to three years. So here we are, you know, with COVID impacting demand and with high cost capacity shutting down over the last two to three months and new capacity, electric arc furnaces still are pushing through these major capacity additions over the next couple of years. And obviously with steel prices are very low right now, trading at roughly $500 per ton and operating rates are roughly 55%, very low compared to historical norms. Well, I was wondering if you could parse that theme a bit on the electric arc furnaces. You have obviously spoken about in your research how those investments in the U.S. are impacting market share growth and potentially setting up the industry for some structural risks. Can you talk about the positioning of those of the integrated, so the blast furnace producers uh, versus the mini mills or the EAFs, and maybe talk about which do you favor? Yeah, the electric arc furnaces or the mini mills are definitely you know uh, well positioned in this market versus the blast furnaces or the integrated steel producers. We back up a little bit. You know, uh, there are two types of steel makers out there. There are the electric arc furnaces or the mini mills. You know, the new cores, the steel dynamics, the commercial metals of the world. They use scrap to make steel. They tend to make them a spread between steel price and scrap costs and scrap and steel prices tend to trend together. You know, as you know, steel prices come off, scrap prices come off as well. So they tend to make a margin or a spread between those two variables. And they tend to make, uh, you know, they generate positive free cash flow through the cycle because of that. They also don't have, they're wealthy new companies out there with low cost structures. They don't have any pension obligations like the blast furnaces have. Whereas the blast furnaces or the integrated steel producers, they use uh, iron ore and coal to make 
deal. So we're talking about, you know, AK Steel, which is obviously part of Cliffs now following the M&A deal in mid-March. We're talking about US Steel, Austin McToll. You know, they've been around for a long, long time. Um, so they require a lot of men's capex to maintain the plants. They have a lot of legacy liabilities in terms of pension obligations, and they consider to be high cost producers. Back, you know, 20, 30 years back, and the integrated steel producers count for roughly 70% of the market share. And over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, we've seen uh, the EF continuing taking market share from the integrated guys. Now the arc furnaces account for roughly 60, 65% of the market share in the U.S. And obviously with the arc furnaces putting money to work to grow in capacity over the next two, three years, they'll continue to take market share from the blast furnaces or the integrated steel producers. You know, those risks that you're sort of speaking to on the integrated is that they're sort of long-term problems, whether they're pensions, whether they're high cost bases, you know, those types of things. You know, obviously those types of things are, the, the challenges there are compounded by the COVID crisis that we're, we're seeing across, you know, global markets and here in the U.S. You know, how have those legacy steel producers or the integrateds been positioning themselves to adapt to the structural shifts? You know, I guess as they're losing share and obviously finding uh, cost of competitiveness to be a challenge. Yeah, so obviously we're talking about, you know, cliffs here and obviously U.S. Steel as well. You know, they're facing a lot of cyclical issues with COVID and whatnot. They're also facing a lot of structural issues with, you know, arc furnaces taking markets here. So they're they're really trying to reposition, uh, reshape their portfolio to sort of adjust to the more competitive operating environment. You have U.S. Steel, you know, obviously they're uh, making a big play into arc furnaces market right now. They're, built, they're putting money to work to build an EF facility down in Fairfield, Alabama, trying to buy the rest of Big River Steel, which is a, a new mini mill, just come to market recently. They're trying to upgrade some of their blast furnaces uh, over the next two, three years. And that's a major capital investment for the company. As for Cliffs, you know, they're putting money to work as well, building HBI plant, which is essentially uh, selling product into the EF market. Obviously, that market is uh, it's going to continue to grow at the same time. And then they actually bought AK Steel. AK Steel is their second biggest customer, you know, account for roughly 30% of their shipments. I think there was some concern that they may lose AK Steel after the contract expires because, you know, obviously U.S. Steel is also a net long in iron ore now, and they have a lot of excess capacity in iron ore, and they're selling into the merchant market in the U.S., and there was some concern that they may lose AK Steel to U.S. Steel as a customer. So by buying AK, you know, Cliffs has a captive uh, customer at this point in time. Let's dig into Cliffs a little bit. You know, if we look at your recommendations, you turned positive on the name in mid-May on the sort of the NASA emergence of the auto industry. Do you still feel constructive on the name? Yeah, I'm definitely constructive, but cautiously optimistic on the fundamental side, right? I think if you look at the hard data out there, right, you know, steel prices are trading roughly $500 per ton, very, very low levels. Operating rates, 55% right now. You really need to have industry operating rates, you know, increasing to 80, 85% for it to be considered to be healthy. So, you know, I think if you look at the hard data, it's still a very, very weak operating environment. But with that said, you know, we're seeing some green shoots here, right? You know, OEMs, for the most part, restarted. You know, we're seeing capacity restarts from the integrated steel producers like U.S. Steel. They restarted one at Blast Furnace at Mont Valley. For Cliffs, you know, they restarted Tilton Iron Ore Mine and Dearborn Blast Furnace. They plan on restarting the Dearborn Blast Furnace next month, which is earlier than expected. But one thing that I really want to highlight about Cliffs is that they're restarting the XBI CapEx project much earlier than what we expected. They plan on restarting in the second half of this year and completing that project by the end of this year. You know, generally speaking, you know, gruff CapEx projects are one of the first things that 
goes offline in a downturn or a recession and one of the last things that come online uh, following a recovery. So for them to restart that project so early speaks volumes of their confidence in the macro picture in their EBITDA free cash flow liquidity position at this point in time. So yeah, you know, I think the liquidity situation is okay. You no, know, I think this year is going to be obviously a very bad year, but I think next year will be a turning point for them. You know, I think that we see EBITDA recover from COVID, from uh, ramp up the HVI plant, CapEx should fall off with the HVI plant completed. So I think they should be generating positive free cash flow by next year. So fundamentals are okay. You know, I think, you know, I'm a little cautious on valuation at this point in time. When we put a buy recommendation on Cliffs, Secures, and the guaranteed notes, you know, they were trading on much lower levels. We've seen a big rally in, you know, high beta credits, especially in greatest due producers over the last two to three weeks. So we're fairly cautious on that. You know, I think the guaranteed notes were trading in the high 60s when we put a buy recommendation on it, and now it's trading in the high 80s. So a 20-point turnaround in a very short time frame. So again, you know, I think we're optimistic about fundamentals, having bottom in the second quarter, but we're more cautious on the valuation standpoint, just given where the levels are at this point. Yeah, let's turn to U.S. Steel. You know, it kind of puts that constructive thesis to the test a little bit more. They've been under a bit more stress. You know, obviously the news this week is that they conducted an equity tap, which is all being equal, you know, positive for credit. But they, you know, they've agreed to a sizable acquisition. They have significant capex commitments. You know, how do you think about their balance sheet? You know, do they have, uh, you know, are they positioned to see this through, or do you see uh, restructuring risks in the future? I think so. I mean, I think they have the balance sheet sort of be able to muddle through. You know, I think they came out with second quarter guidance yesterday and the headline EBITDA number was much weaker than expected. But what I want investors to really focus on, not so much on the EBITDA number, but more on the sort of liquidity burnt rate. And they reiterated their burnt rate of roughly $700, $800 million for the remaining nine months of 2020. So with equity issuance, I think the liquidity situation is further a bluster and there were roughly 3.2, 3.3 billion of liquidity, you know, perform liquidity as of the end of first quarter. So they definitely have enough liquidity so to be able to muddle through 2020. So I think 2021 and onward, if you're really looking at, you know, capital investments needs and also the M&A they need to complete. So you know, the one thing that, that I want to highlight that the time frame for the M&A deal, it has to be by the end of 2023. That option to expire at that point in time. They have obviously a lot of capital investment needs as well. Big ones really Mont Valley, the endless casting and rolling facility, that's going to cost them roughly $1.4 billion. But the thing is that, you know, they don't necessarily have to do it within a three to four year time frame. They can extend that to four, five, six years if needed. You know, I think they can adjust the cadence or the timing of the CapEx depending on the macro environment. Say, for example, your macro environment improves, EBITDA improves, you know, they can put more money to work to uh, work on that project. And obviously, if EBITDA declines much lower than expected, you know, I think you know, they can reduce the CapEx to reduce cash outflow. But all in all, you know, I think free cash flow generation is going to be very weak or negative over the next three to four years, given the amount of CapEx projects they have, given the M&A deal that needs to get done by 2023. But I think they have sort of the optionality in place by adjusting the CapEx, the cadence and timing of the CapEx to sort of be able to model through the next three to four years. Yeah, that deep dive on liquidity is something we're doing across the corporate landscape. Obviously, for our listeners, you're well familiar with this theme is corporate issuance and capital market access has been a big theme for us broadly over the last couple of months. You know, when maybe you could kind of fill that in for us on the steel companies, you know, how has their access been? Who's come to market? We obviously saw some activity from Cliffs this week as well. And how have the deals been doing after they've come to market? 
Yeah, I mean, for the most part, uh, all of our companies have, all our steel companies have come to the market and issued debt over the last three, four months, and all the deals have done very well since issuance. On the IG side, we had Nucor and Steel Dynamics come to the market. Nucor issued $1 billion across five and 10-year paper to blossom liquidity. Steel Dynamics issued $900 million across five and 10-year paper as well for refinancing needs. And then you have a crossover name, Austin Mattel, which just fell down to high yield at the end of last month. They issued $2 billion and converts in equity. And then obviously on the high yield, single Bs, triple C side, you have Cliffs and US Steel issue secure debt. You know, all of them have done very well. You know, Cliffs 978, which issue at OID at 94. 0.5, now trading at 109. US Steel 12, was issued at 95, now trading at 107. But one thing I want to highlight is that, you know, both Cliff and US Steel have sort of maxed out their secured debt capacity at this point in time. So you have US Steel resorting to the equity market, the issuing equity today. And I wouldn't be surprised if Cliff comes to the market as well. Uh, you know, obviously to share the stock prices that rally a lot as well from the bottoms of March and April. And, you know, this would be a good timing. I don't think Cliff necessarily needs the liquidity, but it's definitely good to have. And I think if U.S. Steel gets the deal done today, I wouldn't be surprised if Chris does something like that as well in the near future. I think these steel names are being pragmatic and it's kind of helpful to see from the credit perspective that they're willing to tap these various markets and even potentially dilute some of the equity. But it probably reflects that, you know, these names have been volatile for extended periods of time, so obviously given their exposure to the commodity and that obviously has an impact on capital market access. You know, if we could turn to kind of a bit about the future, and, and I think it's a point that you alluded to when you were talking about cliffs, which is that, you know, the valuations uh, and whether or not the valuations appropriately reflect what the risks are. And COVID is really one of the preeminent factors in those risks. And I think that investors broadly across the financial markets are thinking about you know, what could a second wave look like in the pandemic? And then what would be the knock-on impacts to the overall economy, whether or not there's additional policies that get put in place regarding shelter in place, or whether or not the social impact is going to you know, further dampen demand. And if we think about the steel companies, you know, how well positioned are they if we were to see another leg down in economic activity and you know, how much that flow through from the consumer side of it through to the commodity? Where do you think the steel names shake out? Yeah, I mean, I guess my base case assumption uh, on the second wave is that the second wave will be less severe than the first one. I mean, I think corporations and companies in general have sort of better understanding of the virus uh, and they put in place or are putting in place measures to sort of mitigate the spread of COVID. So I, I think you know, with that assumption in place, I think, you know, we're, we're seeing a bottom in the second quarter and we'll see some sort of recovery in the back half of this year. It's going to be obviously an uneven one given a potential for a second wave and obviously a lot of supply chain issues as well. But, you know, it was a little bit more severe than by my base case assumptions. I think these companies have the liquidity in place to sort of be able to muddle through. And obviously they have a lot of levers to pull to reduce their cash outflow as well. And we've seen that in the last two downturns and then 2008, 2009, Great Recession in 2015, 2016 commodities downturn, and obviously over the last two or three months as well. You know, they can shut down capacity, they can reduce working capital by working down inventories, accounts receivable, and working capital reduction is actually a really big cash inflow for companies, for metals mining companies in general, for specifically for steel companies in times like this. And obviously they can scale back CapEx as, as another option. And if they can resort to the raising equity and selling non-core assets, like what US Steel is doing, right? They're coming to the market today, issuing equity. There's been a lot of talk. They're going to sell down some of the non-core real estate holdings for $200 million by year end. So there's definitely a lot of optionality for these companies to be able to navigate the weak market conditions and to muddle through. 
Well, thanks, Wen. I guess as I looked to grab one more question from you, maybe summarize a bit how you're thinking about the sector and the names that you're looking at. And I, I guess I'd sort of broaden it up potentially to, you know, more broadly the metal names or, or, or further up the value chain with iron ore and steel. You know, are you constructive on the sector overall, defensive, offensive? And then, you know, what are the names that you're focused on or possibly predisposed to? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we're constructive to a certain degree. I mean, I think this is uh, obviously the metals mine sector in general is a very high beta sector, very deeply cyclical. And it really just comes down to valuation, right? I mean, I think spreads have obviously tightened dramatically over the course of the last, you know, two or three months, especially for the high beta names or like the high unit names over the course of the last couple of weeks. So it's just really about valuation, you know. If looking at the steel names specifically, you know, I think, uh, you know, new core steel dynamics are, are obviously core holdings for IG investors. You know, I think if you look at commercial metals, awesome toll. These are, you know, high quality double B credits. Commercial metals is obviously less volatile given that, you know, they're arc furnace, mini mill producer. Awesome toll is a little bit more volatile, but it's a massive name that has a lot of exposure geographically and has a very conservative management team. And that's shown by the fact that their issue equity and conversion and diluted themselves in the downturn. Metal just got downgraded to high yield. And I think at some point in time, they'll migrate back up to IG uh, over the course of the next two to three years. So I think commercial metals, also metal, uh, so high quality double B credits that could be buy and hold for accounts that can dip in down into a double B um, territory. And as for US steel and cliffs, I think, you know, I think the secure debt has a sufficient asset coverage. I think, uh, you know, unsecured paper, that's when it gets really interesting. I don't think it's uh, for buy and hold investors, more for trading purposes. You know, I think if uh, the unsecured paper trades back down to 50 to 60 cents, I think that's when it makes sense to sort of buy into the story, just given their liquidity runway and whatnot. Uh, and then once it trades back up, that's when you start to sell out from it. You know, I think it's really about valuation at this point in time. You know, I think these, it's fairly constructive on the sector as a whole, just given their you know, the balance sheet strength, the liquidity profile, and their ability to model through this downturn. I think, you know, valuations have moved up quite a bit ahead of fundamentals. I think if we do see sell-off, I think that's an opportunity to sort of buy into some of these stories. Well, thank you, Wen. I know you're busy with COVID crisis, earnings, the issuance, some creative issuance at that. So, uh, Wen, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. And thank you, listeners. We also appreciate your time to take a listen to our thoughts today on the steel sector. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com. Or if you're not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complaint in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.